Hi guys, and welcome back to the Rach Active Podcast. My name is Rachel J. I am your host. I'm also a coach and the founder of Core 30. I'm really excited to get stuck into today's episode. I am joined by Nikki Isaacs, who is a psychologist and facilitator for the Butterfly Foundation. Also, Danny Rollins, who is the National Manager of Prevention Services at the Butterfly Foundation. Welcome to the show, guys. I'm so glad to have you on. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so this has been in the works for a while, this little chat that we're about to have. And um, I'm really excited to get stuck into talking about these topics that we're all really passionate about, like body image, eating habits, uh, disordered eating, and basically talking about the relationship between body and food, because it's a you know such a huge uh, topic that is so prevalent, I think, in culture today. And you know, one of the things that I looked up is that there's an estimated one in twenty Australians who suffer from an eating disorder. So it is something that is around in society. And one of the things that I feel is the case is that there's usually a particular journey that you've had that brings you to this kind of work because it's quite specific. So can you both share how you found yourself working specifically in the field of body image and eating disorders and disordered eating? Rach, it's something I'm very passionate about. I've been a psychologist for 23 years and I've always had an interest in body image and eating disorders. I think it's something that I've been so aware of around me, both personally, certainly as a young person growing up in Australia, and just even as an example, like being seeing magazines and being exposed to things when I was young and now seeing how that is very different with being inundated with images on social media. It's been, been a very interesting journey. So I've really had an interest and a passion in this area. And I'm, I'm very passionate about trying to help people feel better about their bodies and really strongly believe that regardless of size or shape or whatever it is, everyone deserves to feel comfortable in their own skin. And that's what we do at Butterfly. We really try and talk to young people, as an example, about how fabulous their bodies are because of what their bodies can do. And so it's just something that I've always been very interested in. Amazing. And you, Danny? Yeah, so um, my, my my pathway to butterfly is probably a little bit um, a little bit well different. The passion is absolutely there, but the passion for me um, kind of stems initially from a lived experience. So I was diagnosed with an eating disorder um, at twenty one. Um, I had been a high level netballer, and, and to be honest, from a personality perspective, very much a um, a candidate for um, for the development of an eating disorder. But of course, life throws things at you, which um, definitely increased my risk. Uh, so I um, I had my experience and I was really fortunate to have some incredible um, support through family and also um, health professionals um, and recovered. So that was, um, I'm a good news story on, on that front. Um, but then I worked in the fitness industry for um, a number of years Um which was a little bit interesting because one of my biggest issues with my eating disorder was exercise and um, compulsive and excessive exercise. So it was a little bit of a tricky space to try to um, or even to think about entering. But I guess for myself um, and having recovered and, and being in a place where behaviours were balanced and um, and for the right reasons, I was moving to look after my health and my mind. Um, and so I, I wanted to bring that into the fitness industry. So I very much had um, my niche focus, which was 
you know, it wasn't about measurements and numbers and achieving and results. It was about um, helping people to have a really positive relationship with, um, with their body and movement. Um, and then I had this just really big desire to um, to give back, I think, and I didn't really want to work in the clinical space, but I definitely knew that I um, I wanted to do something that was positive and I guess I, had, had, I wanted to work with adolescents and young people and really help them in those formative and really crucial vital years um, to hopefully protect them against um, developing an eating disorder, but also um, supporting them to inter- with intervention so that they could ask for help in the event that they were struggling um, at that point in time. So I've been at Butterfly for 14 years and I've worked directly with young people um, all around Australia and um, professionals and parents. My role now looks a little bit different. It's, it's more overseeing um, the various projects that we're doing um, a lot of content development work, which I love. Um, but yeah, so I'm, I'm, I guess, you know, so people think, oh gosh, she's still at Butterfly, but there is unfortunately still much, so much work to do in this space and it's a never changing and growing platform. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how I, how I came to be here at, um, at this point. Amazing. I feel that it's just so interesting to hear both of your experiences and the different paths into dealing with this particular space, you know, because, you know, everybody seems to have obviously a personal journey in. And so for me, you know, what initially sparked my fascination with all of this and why these kinds of messages come through in my work is that um, although I haven't suffered from an eating disorder personally, two of my girlfriends when I was growing up in my teen years, late teens, they both suffered from bulimia. And so one of them, I remember, she would go from being very restrictive with her eating. So she wouldn't eat much at all. And if she was eating, she was having Diet Coke and Minties. And then on the complete other end of the scale, she would have intentional binges where she would then go out and go to the supermarket, buy all the junk food, and then literally go home and sit down and eat and and make herself sick, essentially. And the other girlfriend, she she used to clog up her drains at home and her parents were wondering why their plumbing was always going out. And it was because she was throwing up in the sink because she didn't want to throw up in the toilet. And she told me that she actually learnt this pattern of eating from a friend that she had stayed with on an exchange in Italy and had discovered this, you know, new way of losing weight or whatever it was. And obviously then brought home these eating patterns. And so, you know, for me being the person outside of that experience um, and also at a young age, being really curious about the the behaviours and the the mindset behind that. And, you know, for one of them, I took her to a GP so she could get a referral to see a psychologist. But then even moving through, I mean, I've worked in media and entertainment as well. And so, especially during my modelling days, it was it's so prevalent. There were so many girls that had experienced varying degrees of body image issues or disordered eating. And then even in my practice as a nutrition coach, having people come to me to see me specifically for nutrition problems, but really, you know, when you kind of dug a little bit deeper, it just always came back to that relationship with body and food. And so I'm so passionate about it because of that, because knowing that so many people are experiencing different, you know, varying degrees of it, it's a conversation that needs to be had. 
and that needs to be had openly. I think that's one of the things that hasn't really happened a lot, you know, in mainstream media especially. So it's so great to hear how you've come into the space. And one of the first things that I'd like to kind of get your take on is understanding how the broader context of our culture and society can influence or impact behaviours because I think that if we're not aware of that and and how that plays into individually our own patterns of behaviour, it can be a little bit dangerous. So can you speak to the diet culture, losing weight, that kind of thing? I think what's really, really important um, with eating disorders to understand first is that they're a mental illness first and foremost. So they're not, um, obviously the experiences that you've seen is that people may be exposed to behaviours and there may be elements of copycat, but in order for somebody to be diagnosed with a clinical eating disorder, it's a mental illness first and foremost. And obviously behaviours and things like that can be quite shocking and quite people can be really unclear it can seem mind-boggling as to how or why or but I guess that's the whole mindset thing is someone is it's it's they're being taken over by their eating disorder I think um that's a really important thing and when as Nikki said earlier um you know the pathway is quite complex so you know there are biological factors there are socio uh, psychological factors and they're also socio-cultural risk factors um so then the, the complexity around how someone's eating disorder develops is um, is going to be unique, but it's also going to be really, really complex. So the diet culture stuff that you're referring to is very much sitting within that socio-cultural factor um, element and it's an environmental factor effectively. So it's what we're exposed to um, around us, which of course is incredibly intense and um, has a very, very strong and harmful message, which is that Thin is better, more muscular is better, leaner is better. Um, and in order to be better, that diet is the answer. Dieting is the answer. Um, and there is no in-between. There is no grey. Um, and for somebody who really internalises those messages, um, obviously they are at much higher risk of, of body dissatisfaction, so feeling uncomfortable and unhappy in their body, and then engaging in behaviours that can um, increase their risk. So they may start dieting, which then puts the they're more at risk of disordered eating, which also then puts them at a greater risk of um, of an eating disorder. So um, I guess that complexity around it is a really integral part of eating disorders. Um, it's not single faceted. There's not one, one single cause. Someone can't catch one. You can't give somebody one. Um, but we do, and it's also not a lifestyle choice. So someone isn't just choosing um, that way because they want to be thin. There's there's other factors at play that add um, that obviously to, again, the, the complexity of it. Just a couple of extra things because I would like to continue talking about diet culture. It's very important. But just in terms of what you were saying, Rach, as well, firstly, that's great that you took your friend to see a GP because eating disorders are mental illnesses. They're, they require clinical diagnosis and clinical treatment and they often require a team of specialists. It's often not something that can just be overcome overnight. It usually requires uh, a multifaceted team helping with people's recovery and people certainly can recover. And we know from the literature and it, we assume it's underreporting that people experiencing disordered eating have a 20% chance of then going on to experience an eating disorder. So we really want to encourage discussion about it. 
in a, in a non-triggering safe way and an encouragement of help seeking if you're noticing friends around you who are experiencing these kinds of symptoms. Mm, yeah, definitely. I think that it's important to note, you know, that it is something that perhaps isn't spoken about. And I think conversations like this is is the key in a way to, to normalise the conversation around eating disorders because there is a stigma, generally speaking, with mental health in general anyway. So, uh, you know, I think it's great that we're able to talk about it. And just kind of coming back to diet culture, losing weight, um, specifically in industries like, you know, the fitness industry, the beauty industry, things that are kind of, um, I guess, more front-facing that that we see as a general population. What are your thoughts around those industries? Because, I mean, my feeling is that obviously there's a particular way in which these industries operate. The messaging is very specific. It targets a specific goal. However, if it is triggering for somebody, then, you know, obviously being aware of that messaging can help to separate that out. Uh, it almost then requires people to have an element of responsibility in being aware. So I'm just wondering what your thoughts are around industry's messaging and whether you feel that it is more of a case of people becoming educated on why those industries message the way that they do. Just having, I guess, worked in the fitness industry, one thing that I really struggled with, like to the core, was that... There is on the surface, we're here to help people and we're here to help people get healthy. But at the end of the day, the thing that was the real driver was dollars and profile and um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a for-profit industry. Beauty industry, fitness industry, diet industry, weight loss industry are for profit. So we, when you have someone who is vulnerable and that is anybody who is feeling unhappy in their body, they will seek out whatever it is that's going to provide that quick fix and that solution. And that's the real challenge that we have in our society and why we are going to see this pattern of behaviour with people engaging with diet because, oh, well, there's no harm in the diet. It says it's going to, I need to lose a few kilos. I need to do this. So it's going to make me healthier. I'm, I need to be hotter, better, whatever it might be. There are so many carrots that get dangled in front of people, which is why people buy. So I never feel, I I. I really feel for people when they are, because, you know, people say, oh, Danny, you must be so angry at people when they diet. And to be honest, that is so far from the truth because the reality is that is something that's available to somebody because of the culture that we live in. Our culture tells us that you are going to be more lovable, more successful, have more followers, have more likes, get more money, more endorsements, a, a better life if you look a certain way. So what we have set up in our society is this ideal as the pinnacle and then all these little solutions, which is buy the diet, buy the, buy the transformation program, buy this, to get that. And we know that for majority of people, those practices will fall short and they will fail those individuals. But unfortunately, individuals don't point the finger at going, well, that was an extreme exercise program that nearly sent me to the to my knees. I couldn't, I couldn't keep up. Or oh, my goodness, I was so starved and that cost me so much money to be involved with that or my goodness I can't maintain these beauty beauty practices they don't point the finger there they instead turn the finger on themselves and think they've failed and they're not good enough and 
And so we have this weight, weight to worth. We have this ideal appearance to worth. We have that internalised I'm not good enough, which just sends people further and further. Um, so it's a really complex thing. You know, ideally I would pick up diet culture and all those messaging and just fling them as far away as possible because they are the things that are causing people to come unstuck. It's, it's, um, it's promised as the thing that's going to make life better, um, but if anything, it, it, it does quite quite the opposite. Yeah. And we know that it's not only that it's accessible, it's really we're very manipulated because a lot of these, the diet industry and even the fitness and the wellness industry, because it is being driven by dollars, there is a very, and, and say the advertising industry, so I'm not, I'm not criticising these industries, but am quite objectively saying that a lot of these things are set up to make money. A lot of these things are set up to to specifically prey on our vulnerabilities so that we will buy that diet, which is the answer, so that we will buy that product. Because if we use, for example, if we use that moisturiser, we're going to look like whoever is endorsing that product. And we know from looking at it, say, for example, with diets, there's been a lot of research into it. We know from 50 years of research on diets that they generally don't they don't work. Uh, and I'm talking about fad diets. I'm not talking about long-term nutritional healthy eating plans. I'm not talking about a plan which has been very well thought out by a non-diet dietitian. Talking about the fad diets that are sold to us that are not necessarily sustainable, not necessarily achievable, certainly can't be achieved in the time frame that's said. And they're set up to fail. And I think, Danny, it might have even been you that said this, that if, if diets worked, there'd only be one. Well, but, I mean, this is, it doesn't, they don't, they don't cater to the individual, do they? Like everybody is. It's a one shape, it's has, a one size fits all. Yeah, and everyone has, has a different, um, have different needs. They have different needs in, in how much they're ingesting and what exercise they do. And, and you know, we're not just. And their metabolism and their genetics. Yeah, that's right. That's, and their age and what they can and physically kind of can't do. I think the other challenge that is existing in, um, the diet culture is that it doesn't consider that they're, that healthy people can look different. That it suggests that that when it comes to health, that there is, um, you know, the, again, the one size kind of fits all, and that you can look, you can tell by looking at somebody if they are healthy or if they are not. Now that is very limiting. It reinforces stigma around weight, shape and size and therefore you can see why people are trying to conform to what is socially um, acceptable. And so there is this, this information and there's more and more research coming out around the importance of approaching health as the primary focus rather than weight. And so what that means is obviously diet culture looks at, at a person's weight, how much weight do you want to lose instead of health, which is what can you gain? you know, where, what strength gains do you have? Where does your, you know, maybe it's your cholesterol improves or your blood pressure is, is balanced or your heart rate, um, you know, all of these elements that can't be seen um, from the naked eye, that focusing on those things are going to have much longer term positive benefits on an individual rather than us just driving this message home that it's the weight or the shape or the body fat or the leanness or the muscular, the size of the muscles that, um, that determines how healthy somebody is. Definitely. Because we know that the mind and the body also isn't always connected. <laughs> yeah, and we, we actually want them to be connected so they're aligned and, and going down the same path. And I agree with a lot of the stuff that you've said there about, um, I mean, 
for me, it's been very conflicting as well, obviously working in the health and fitness space, but also understanding media. You know, I studied communications as well. So I understand the workings of the media and communications. And so for me, it's quite conflicting in that you want to make sure that you are advocating for a healthy mind, you know, a healthy self-talk, positive body image. Um, aside from the physical aspects of strength and things that you want to achieve in that area, um, the mind and body need to be aligned and connected because if if you don't have a healthy mind, just, just because you look like you are healthy or look like you're fit doesn't necessarily mean that you are content and peaceful within yourself, right? So this is why this work is so important because the mindset piece and the mental fitness piece to me is actually the most important element of your health. And then everything else kind of follows in after that. Um, so yeah. I really love that it's, you know, we're all on board with the same message. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And it is really conflicting though, right? It's conflicting for a lot of people. It's conflicting for a lot of fitness professionals. And because, and if we look at, and we take it from a money perspective, right? So if you're trying to make a living out of, of these industries, people and consumers don't necessarily want to be told that they're going to get healthy. They want to, there is, because they are told through all of these ideals that are set in our society that, no, 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 you need to look a certain way, which will mean your weight needs and your body shape needs to change in order to achieve that. So there is this constant pull. Um, and I guess this is why, you know, this whole movement around body appreciation and body acceptance and focus on functionality rather than form and aesthetics is such a crucial piece of the puzzle. It is going to take a lot of time for that message to really get through because the really loud messages are the ideal messages and the the ones that diet culture have the big bucks to promote um, and and sell and sell into things. But it's on that individual level, I think, as a fitness professional or anyone working in the health space that we reflect on our practice and think, what do I want to add to this industry? How can I have a different voice and encourage? and help that person on that individual level to be more appreciating of their body and to be more accepting of their body, especially if that body doesn't sit a societal ideal. Like that is, that's where our true work is going to come, where we can really help people to feel comfortable in the body that they have that doesn't necessarily fit with what society says it, it should or shouldn't be for a, for, a, for a man or a woman. And I think that another key to all of this is that that whole notion of media literacy and it's about really, really talking to people about the fact that they need to inquire about what they're consuming. They need to look at what they're consuming, whether it comes to diets, whether it comes to advice from any of the industries, Rach, that you've been talking about. Let's ask questions. Do these points make sense? Are they true? Are they real? Are we looking at these idealised versions of bodies in a very narrow range of bodies that are promoted as the ideal bodies. All we've got to do is look around and say that, hang on, we don't all look like that. And then also things like social media, which we're just inundated with these images. And it can be as simple as, okay, well, I'm feeling quite vulnerable and lonely. I'm looking at my friend's shiniest version of themselves. And if I'm comparing myself to their experiences, well, that's not going to make me feel good. Likewise, if I'm comparing my own body to these incredibly filtered and photoshopped versions of people on social media, it's really about questioning, well, hang on, am I even comparing myself to a body that exists? It could be completely digitally manipulated and the, the effects are so sophisticated these days, it's very difficult to tell whether they are real or not. And when it, you know, going back to that notion of a diet, 
and the wellness industry, where are we getting our information from? Are we getting our information from influencers who have automatic credibility because they have thousands of followers? Let's really question what kind of nutritional qualifications have they got? Where's the science behind it? And I think that that can be another key to challenging all these things that we're we're inundated with, that if we can start asking those kinds of questions, we can be more empowered to realise that, well, maybe what we're searching for is not possibly attainable. And then we won't feel as though we failed. We can actually feel empowered and work with all of those things to feel more comfortable within ourselves and, and think about, well, what is it we're looking for? And, and if health can be the motivation rather than weight, we can find with self-compassion, we can actually achieve a lot more and feel a lot better. Yeah, I really love that too, because obviously social media now, it's so in your face. It's so prevalent. Everybody's on social media instead of mainstream media being the the main focus now, I feel like we've got it on our phones everywhere we go. And so one of the things that I feel is really important is to set those healthy boundaries around your consumption on social media. Like you said, Nikki, if you're looking at something and you're not feeling great about yourself, then unfollow that account or just kind of check in with yourself to understand what that makes you feel, what consuming that message makes you feel inside about your own body. And there is that element of, uh, you know, sort of taking responsibility for for what you consume because those messages are going to exist whether you look at it or not. So I think, yeah, that's a really, really great point. And doing that is incredibly empowering and good for self-confidence and good for self-compassion. And we can really do a lot of work with the young people that we work with by really encouraging them to curate their own social media feeds. 100%. We also have to acknowledge that that is incredibly tough to do. Yes. Actually, like, that takes an enormous amount of strength to take yourself. And when someone is really struggling and potentially with their mental health or if they're in a really, in a not a positive headspace, people can be can be almost using what they see as a way to punish themselves further. Yes. So. I think if we, that's where we kind of need to look out for our mates as well. And if we know we've got a friend that is is not perhaps doing that well, or if they they seem like if they're, they're they're struggling in relation to how they're interacting on social media, or it might be what they're posting, it might be how they're commenting, it might be, you know, because you can observe what other people are doing on social media as well. But I just think it can absolutely be empowering and we need to encourage people to to take a break and to unfollow those pages and to report things that are not okay. But I think it's really important that we also acknowledge that that is incredibly tough to do as well. And I guess, you know, of course we would just take time off and we'd have a week off, but we know so many really of sound mind adults who cannot do that, who cannot take time, time away from these platforms because it is the inner world for a lot of people now. It is, and that's not just a young person, that's people of all ages. It is it is very central to um, their connection, their friends, their identity, um, you know, all, all the things that they can get and give on these platforms um, make them really challenging. And, you know, they are, they are addictive spaces and we have to just also acknowledge that that is, that is how they have become so successful is because they have been manipulated to get to us 
so that we need them. <laughs> yeah. And that's that's 100% right. And and a way of potentially combating that is through social support and people talking to each other and it being normalised that we're all feeling that way. But that's been made even more difficult through the pandemic because yeah. certainly in Melbourne we haven't had that opportunity. Say if we go back to young people, I mean you're talking about adults who have the, who have such difficulty doing this. So let's assume it's even harder for young younger people to take themselves off social media and so much harder during COVID when we haven't been around each other as much, particularly mm. in Melbourne. Yeah, so it's, it's almost balancing that, I mean, understanding depending on where you're at in your journey and, and what the individual is experiencing because being able to self-manage your consumption can be okay for some people but then a lot harder for others and just having that awareness and understanding across a broader spectrum of people, I guess, um, and how that can impact them, right? So I kind of want to also then get into eating behaviours because there is a really broad spectrum, I guess, to varying degrees. There, There's sort of the least severe to the most severe um, in terms of unhealthy eating patterns. Can you talk me through the, the spectrum? Well, what we actually, in a lot of our workshops at Butterfly, we do show people a spectrum and it goes from healthy behaviour to unhealthy behaviour to disordered eating and then to eating disorders. And even though we present this linear spectrum, it's very important to emphasise that it often doesn't occur in that way. It's very complex. It's very individual. There's not this kind of linear fashion that just occurs that suddenly you're healthy one day and then you're not healthy another. Because often our relationship with food is very linked to our body image. And our body image are the thoughts and feelings we have about the way we look. And because that's about thoughts and feelings, it's not static. They're things that can change. And there are so many influences, so many both individual, personal and environmental influences on our body image. And so much of that is linked to how we then have a relationship with food. So if we are looking at a bit of a spectrum, we really would like everyone to be in that healthy range. And that's where people don't see food as good or bad. They see like food's morally neutral. You know, food isn't good or bad, but there are certain foods if we're trying to fuel our body, if we're trying to eat for nourishment and enjoyment, we want to have sometimes foods and occasional foods and also everyday foods. So if you're putting it into semantics, that's a better way of looking at it rather than good or bad food because as soon as you use the terms good or bad, you're bringing judgment into it and then that can create some guilt. So we really want people to be in a situation where they eat to nourish themselves, they eat for enjoyment, they enjoy all ranges of food in moderation and, and they know how much they need. They, they can eat uh, in what we call an intuitive way. So they listen to their body cues and they... They eat what their body needs and they move to nourish themselves and they move for enjoyment and there's a whole lot of exercise. And, of course, there are so many other factors to health such as mental health and lifestyle habits and genetics and other people's choices around them. Like, for example, Danny, this was another one of yours, that if someone has a cold and they choose to come to school and they spread their cold to everybody, then you're depending on other people's choices for your own health. So there's a whole range oh, of... did I say that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good one so take the credit whether you said oh, it or right, okay, sure. <laughs> so there are so many things that make up health and when we talk about food and our relationship with food that's where we're talking about then we get into the unhealthy range and that's where we're 
There might be a little bit of preoccupation with our body shape and size. There might be a bit of a concern about what we're consuming. There might be a little bit of guilt, a little bit of desire to diet, but it's not necessarily, it's uncomfortable, but it's not necessarily a sign that something clinical is going on. And then we move into the disordered eating, and that's the one I was talking about before where there's then a 20% chance of developing an eating disorder, and that's where there might be some uncontrollable binging going on, there might be some purging, there's a real, really extreme dissatisfaction and preoccupation with how we look and what we're consuming, and that's where some sort of intervention should really occur, whether that's about seeing a GP ringing the Butterfly Helpline, which is a a wonderful resource for people to use. It's free, it's confidential. There are trained counsellors on the end of that. So that's, people are welcome to use that. I'm sure Rachel will provide the details for that. I will. (laughs) Uh, And then or speaking to a psychologist or a psychiatrist or a non-diet dietitian, there are a range of professionals who can help with that. And then there's an eating disorder, which there is an extremely unhealthy relationship with food and generally the body with with most of the eating disorders in that context. Um, obviously, with again the pathway, is, as Nikki said, it's it's absolutely not linear um, at all. And obviously, we've talked about some of the risk factors being, you know, there's the environmental ones, but another one in relation to eating disorders is also there's quite um, there's so much evidence around trauma and the influence of trauma. And obviously, experiences that we have in life, be it the people we're exposed to, the different experiences we just generally have, will influence the way that we eat and the relationship that we have with eating and food. That not, might also be cultural, there'll be religious um, reasons as well. And I think when we think about eating and, and that pathway, you know, as Nikki kind of identified there, what can really throw throw it off all along the way is, again, diet culture. So there is this, this ideal way of eating and that's presented in our society, which, again, doesn't fit everybody. You know, it doesn't consider individual needs. And obviously where diet culture really plays a role in in pushing people up along that spectrum is it takes away people's body cues and it, it tells them what to eat, how to eat, where to eat, what time to eat, when to move, how much to move. It doesn't allow for the individual to drive their own health behaviours and obviously that is the stuff that starts to skew it. So when we see people engaging in behaviours that are, and I, I say it's playing around with food is kind of that an initial unhealthy space where it's, I'm just going to have a play with this or I'm going to see this and, oh, I've got some some changes in my body shape or weight or when weight and size and shape become the drivers um, for eating habits, we're starting to move away from the healthy space because ultimately, and, yes, it's it's it would be wrong of me to suggest, of course people are okay and want to look okay and want to look good and want to look, well, great, that is that's not going to change and I think individuals are allowed to decide how they want to look and, and what's important to them on that front. But how they how they get there um, is the one, is the area that we have to be, I guess, aware of. And if we're consumed and thinking and over-preoccupied with eating and what comes next and, and macro, micronutrients and where it all sits in my day and all this thing, it becomes all-consuming and it takes us away from actually being able to live our life. And so this is where when those, those behaviours start to impact the way a person interacts socially, maybe it affects their, the way they study, they might not be able to concentrate as much or they're just 
pre, you know, they're so consumed with um, thinking about eating body weight themselves, their self-esteem is low, all this um, is all consuming. Then we're starting to see the real impact on a person's life and eating and movement should be there to prop us up to live our best life, not to be all-consuming where we have no time, energy, um, you know, to think about our friends, our family, our jobs, our, um, you know, all the different things that we want to do um, in life. Mm. I feel like there's so many things that both of you said there that uh, I feel like are really great points. Firstly, Nikki, talking about intuitive eating and that non-judgmental talk around food and sort of having a more positive talk or self-talk firstly about your body but then secondly around food specifically like it's a a fuel for your body rather than something that's good for you or bad for you and to have that moderation approach to eating I feel like is really important but also just touching on language I think is really important too and understanding the way in which language uh, and how you speak to yourself really can affect the way you perceive food I think is a really important point. Danny you're talking about it's shifting then into being all-consuming where your focus is more about aesthetics or weight or some other sort of uh, external metric. Aside from those things and it becoming all-consuming, what are the other biggest differences? For example, if someone is just having, you know, like a, a blowout or, or overindulging one weekend because it's Christmas or someone's birthday. Yeah, living, just living, living their life. life. Living, right, enjoying, exactly. Enjoying different events. Yeah. As, a, yeah. as opposed to something like binge eating disorder where yeah. binging will occur, what are the differences there that someone might be able to understand where it's sort of crossed that line yeah that tipping point yeah and look the tipping point is going to be different for everybody so I think that's what's really important um obviously one of the biggest challenges with um with disordered eating and eating and eating issues um or eating like eating disorders such as um anorexia nervosa bulimia nervosa binge eating disorder other specified feeding and eating disorders so they're where they don't necessarily fit into that criteria and there's some other um feeding and eating disorders as well, um, there are set criteria that kind of decide that that where, where people need to, um, you know, where a clinician will identify what, um, what someone's experiencing or not. But there is very much that mindset piece to it um, and it's complex in how it, how it develops. And um, I think the tipping point is going to be individual. There's very, there's significant medical consequences that come with eating disorders of all, all those kinds. So typically people often think, oh, and, you know, there's a, a really a big misconception that, that oh, you know, anorexia nervosa, that is the worst that you can get. But other eating disorders can be just as, can be life-threatening and can affect med- people medically um, as well. So that's the really concerning part with, um, with eating disorders. So, of course, you've got the mental illness comp- component, but you've also got the medical consequences that can come as a result of um, the various behaviours. I won't go into all the various behaviours because it's important that um, if anyone is struggling that they're seen as all their behaviours are, are valid and it's not pitching behaviours against um, being worse or, or better than somebody else's. Um, but I think the biggest thing is that if... Um, often a person won't identify that themselves. That's a really crucial thing with an eating disorder. So particularly the more the mindset starts to take over, um, and I used to always used to explain it as there's my, there's myself and there's my eating disorder and it's it's taken over. It's not me. I'm going to fight it and it's going to 
I'm going to, um, you know, bring it down effectively is, is the kind of the goal. And that separation strategy is a really powerful one. Um, but but where the further you get and the louder that eating disorder voice and, and behaviours and words and the more malnourished you become, um, the harder it is to, to intervene on yourself. And so this is where it is about um, people around who are noticing those behaviours um, and it might be socially and it might be physically but generally it's it's you know something's not quite right with with somebody that's close to you. Um, yes, physically is obviously an easier one to identify but we often assume that that's just weight loss and if it's a weight gain that, oh, someone's just, for want of a better phrase, let themselves go, not realising that perhaps there could be other things at play that are affecting the somebody's body shape, shape changes. Um, so, you know, all that shame that comes in with um, with bodies and eating and all that really play into the eating disorder mindset. So it is it is about um, possibly when when you can see it see something happening is intervening sooner than later, saying something, doing something rather than nothing. They may be angry, they may be in denial, they may say, you're absolutely wrong, I'm totally fine, I've got this, I'm... That's another conversation that then needs to be had. And, again, if you are concerned, you trust your instinct as a person close to somebody to say, nah, I'm going to ask again or I'm going to ask again because it's the welfare and the well-being of that individual as a whole um, that, that we care about. And there will be that moment where that person goes, oh, yeah, no, I can I can see where this is this is probably tipped over. How they then engage with treatment, what they do from there, someone can try and support and influence, but obviously the driver of recovery very much needs to, to come from within. Um, and it is a privilege to find incredible help and a great treatment team and have, have resources and money. So we need to also be mindful that recovery is, is scary and it's, it's tricky. So, you know, that tipping point, there's a lot of reasons why people don't want to put their hand up and say, yes, I've, you know, I'm experiencing this and it's it's time to um time to get well because um it's so so complex around around that. Mm. And I, I think just leading on from there as well, the tipping point might not be something that is a physical telltale sign and for people around perhaps someone that they're concerned about in their life that they think may be experiencing some kind of you know unhealthy eating patterns or disordered eating what are some other things that support people can be mindful of or look out for aside from the obvious physical signs because that probably is something that just generally we need to be educated on so that we know what to look out for right and there are there are a range of of warning signs which often if they're observed together they might indicate that something is going on for somebody uh, and and before I get into that I just want to make there's one other comment because a lot of it is about as Danny rightly said a lot of it is about you noticing among your friends or peers or loved ones that something may not quite be right and gut feel about that can be very important but also people sometimes aren't willing or comfortable admitting that something is going on for themselves but one of the indicators that a tipping point may occur for someone if you've just said something like you've, you've got Chris and you're eating a lot 
versus binging uh, can be a real feeling of lack of control and guilt. So that can be something that you may not be able to observe in someone else, but you might be able to observe it in yourself. And that it's it's a, it's not just once a year at Christmas or or every month when you've got your period. It's something that is happening quite a lot. And there are feelings of loss of control and guilt associated with it. That can be that can be just one of the many tipping points. Just one example of it. In terms of the warning signs, uh, a lot of them are consistent with the warning signs that we talk about generally for mental health. So someone may just not be behaving like themselves. They might be a bit socially withdrawn. They might be acting out a bit physically. We've talked about weight change, but they may also start looking tired, or they might start dressing differently. A lot of people will start wearing very baggy clothes. Uh, on the other hand, some people engage in risky, promiscuous behaviours and might start dressing in in very risky type looking clothes. Uh, and that can be self-punitive in some ways as well. And some of these may not indicate there's anything going on relating to an eating disorder, but often when they're taken in conjunction with each other. So someone might be talking about food all the time. They might be talking about the diets they're on all the time. They might show a reduced ability to concentrate, their motivation might be low, they might be really engaging in a lot more exercise than they used to. And I think that's a really tricky thing and a, a new word which I've, I think is a really important one is healthifying everything. So when someone is healthifying everything to the nth degree and just can't, but also if there's any change to a person's, um, you know, routine that, that can throw the person out, that they really struggle with either they might not be able to engage in, in their exercise or movement in the same way or their eating, um, it changes. Or I guess eating disorders ultimately are also a way of, of a person coping with emotional um, struggles and trauma and pain. So we need to remember that as well. So it's if there's an experience that is challenging or stressful and might also be positive emotions and feelings that can be overwhelming for a person with an eating disorder. So where you see them just struggling um, with that, we also need to remember there are people that can put on a very brave face when they have an eating disorder and they can be, they can can go for many, many years with no one really knowing um, what they're experiencing or, or how they're feeling inside. So I think if you are concerned about someone and you're not exactly, it's about reading up, it's about finding evidence-informed information. It's not just taking one person's story and saying, oh, that's what it must look like or that's what it must sound like or they're the behaviours that mean you have an eating disorder or you don't. Um, the Butterfly Foundation website has got lots of fact sheets as well as the National Eating Disorder Collaboration. That's another place where you can access lots of um, evidence-informed um, information. Obviously, within the fitness industry um, and for yourself, you might have lots of listeners who, who are obviously in, interested in, in fitness. When do you know it's gone too far? There's a really great website called How Far Is Too Far? And it's a bit like a checklist and you can work out whether or not your behaviours are kind of fine, a little bit problematic or, oh, my gosh, we've probably tipped over into something quite um quite serious. But yeah, I think there's lots of different um, behaviours, but there's also lots of different reasons that drive the behaviours. So as somebody looking from the outside in, if your friend or your loved one or partner or child is not seeming themselves, just trust that instinct, seek information, research, call the Butterfly Helpline yourself and have a conversation and then, then, then that might give you, you know, more um, information on then how to approach somebody if you are concerned about them. If it's yourself, 
I think most people know it's potentially something's going on, but it's, again, it's a really um, tricky time moving from denial to um, to out of, out of that phase. Yeah, and I think one of the things that you both there touched on was just trusting your instincts, whether it's you that is experiencing something or you're witnessing that in someone else is we all kind of know what that feels like when something seems a little bit off. So to just go with that, because if it turns out to be nothing, then that's great. But if not, then at least you've taken some action towards unpacking what's going on with you, right? So I think that's a really great point. I think probably we, you you know, um, we haven't touched on, I guess, the exercise so much. And I guess coming from one, a tipping point, I think with exercise in particular is exercise is supposed to energise you, lift you up, your fitness either needs to be maintaining or, or just, you know, having an element of feeling good. When it's going too far with exercise, and it absolutely can because, again, that's the celebrated um, thing that happens in our society is let's do, you know, because we're being told people aren't moving enough, so let's, it's it's not a problem if you're, you're moving all the time. But if you're training or, or exercising when you're injured, when you're sick, um, when you're not listening to your body, when you're not giving yourself enough food to actually do the movement that you need to do, then, again, we're in the disordered space. We're not in that healthy space of you know, making sure our body's got what it needs um, to rest, recover, perform, um, and that's, again, just another another element to be aware of in, in the mix. We want to be balanced, I suppose, is a, a probably a good way to put it, is that everything is aligned in line with w- what you're doing in terms of your health and fitness rather than it being so skewed off to one side where you're over-consumed or um, obsessively partaking in certain exercises or obsessively eating in a certain way. So it, it's about finding that balance, right? Yeah. So I'm interested also to know uh, if you've noticed in your work, if there are co- a common set of underpinning beliefs that someone might have about themselves that might be experiencing unhealthy eating patterns um, across the spectrum of the differing elements to disordered eating or, or you know, eating patterns? Yeah, the, the biggest set of beliefs I think is that um, weight equals worth. So that is big, the biggest one. And so self-esteem is so tightly connected and self-worth is so tightly connected to how someone feels about their physical self. They are different things, um, but they definitely are very tightly connected. So what we do know is that um, when someone is struggling with themselves and the way they feel about themselves as a person, obviously the body is the most tangible thing that they have and that might be punishment, it might be control, it might be um, just complete avoidance of, of looking after their body in any way, shape or form because they just, it's it's this, I guess it does ultimately come back to this kind of punishment and not and not um, taking care, care of themselves um, which can stem from a whole range of different reasons. But, um, you know, that that belief that, um, again, that, that their, their body defines them or that, um, you know, and, again, we have to be really mindful that trauma does play a, a huge role in this. So if someone, I don't want to talk to that experience, I haven't had that myself, but for somebody where there's been sexual abuse or sexual assault, that can massively affect the way that they feel about their body and the way that they engage with um, with eating and movement. Um, and so just being mindful that, that that adds a whole other level of complexity um, to that. And the beliefs in their body will, again, that will be different based on the experience that, um, that they've had. 
In addition, just a sense of control that uh, that was something that we've been particularly aware of during COVID, that if people feel that they can't control their surroundings, then they may try and control their food intake. And that's just yet another another example and certainly not the only only factor that's going on, but often that's at play as well. Mm. I think it's important to understand those beliefs are uh, more internalised about self rather than, um, or, or again, like you said, Danny, placing your worth on your physical appearance or placing your worth based on your weight, external factors to us. And I think one of the things that I definitely try and incorporate into my work is to advocate for developing a rich sense of self-worth within rather than placing your value on things that are external to you because I, I suppose you know those things will shift and change our bodies always change as we go through life different things happen and so uh, I, th- I think that's a really great point to just be aware of developing a rich sense of self-worth within you for yes. the inherent qualities that you have that yes. are outside of your external appearance that's right we have far more control over what is going on within than what's going on outside yeah, yeah. I really love that and I think identity too you know so many people they play such a strong role in their identity that you know that based around how they look and then you made that really great point then right which is your bodies our bodies will change and grow all the time Last year was a really challenging year for, for, for pretty much everyone in some way, shape or form. Bodies will change as a result of routine changes, but the, the, the interestingly coming out of lockdowns and doesn't matter how intense it was, the focus became about our body weight. Oh, my gosh, our COVID kilos or how our bodies changed and let's punish ourselves because, my gosh, the way we coped with a, a global pandemic was maybe our eating habits changed or there was no compassion, there was no kindness to self. There was not like, oh, my gosh, I need to I need to in, work on my mental health and I need to get my my routine back in, in place. And, and this was happening, obviously, with adults, but hearing parents really concerned about the body shape changes that their children were going through. And, again, we're fixating on the weight. We're fixating on the numbers and, and instead of going, what do I need now to nurture myself after a really pretty tough time? And where's the priority? And I think, again, this is this, again, diet culture plays a massive role in this in decide, telling us that there, there sh- you shouldn't, that shouldn't have happened and now you need to get back to what you should be looking like so that everything will be okay. Um, and it's just not that simple. And diets are promoted as providing that solution, but we know they don't. They don't provide that solution. We need to fix this. Okay, a diet's going to come in and fix it, but it so rarely does. Mm. Or, yeah, even just fixating on the eat, like just healthifying everything to make sure we can, you know, get back, mm. you know. It's important to note, I think, that, you know, through COVID, we've all, whether you're conscious of it or not, we're all experiencing collective trauma because we've all gone into, I mean, in Melbourne, we've gone into lockdown four times, you know, that kind mm. of shift in your lifestyle. And, uh, I mean, I think one of the great things about what has happened is that there has been more focus placed on mental health and that has become more normalised and the conversations are happening a, a lot more openly, which I think is great. But just to understand that if, even if you're not conscious of it, we are experiencing trauma. So your body too shifts with what's going on chemically when you're experiencing trauma. So just to be aware of that and, yeah. and not to be so hard on ourselves and, and have that compassion, like you said, Danny, have compassion and 
know what to nourish and nurture ourselves with during this yeah. really difficult time. And always. And always, yeah. yeah it doesn't and have to be a pandemic. Eating, eating disorders were massively, like, massively affected last year. There was such an incredible spike in the number of people who started to develop eating disorders, relapse from eating disorders. Um, so there's there's a whole, you know, it was a really, a really, really challenging um, time. And as you said, mental health um, was obviously massively affected. I think big thing that that was noticed is that people who typically couldn't really understand maybe what they'd experienced in the past or maybe had had not really a, a huge amount of experience with mental ill health um, was all of a sudden going, oh, oh, okay, so that's what it feels to be. Okay, that's a bit different to just having a bit of a down day. That feels a bit different. Oh, gosh, okay, so that's what anxiety might feel like in my body. I don't really... I never really knew what that was like. So we're having this more kind of shared um, shared experience, which, again, adds to um, allowing people to be more compassionate to themselves but also to other people too, I think, which is really, really important for our society. Yeah, definitely. I'm really curious to know because I know that you both will have worked with and or witnessed a range of different people in your work throughout your careers. So are there any particular standout journeys that you have seen that have gone into this process of identifying unhealthy eating patterns and been able to sort of come out the other side that has been quite inspiring that you might want to share? Do you know, I, I have found, I think I have found working with students, working with younger people particularly inspiring and so often I'll be chatting to them and there'll be these like, you can almost see it like these light bulb moments and when you start talking to them and, and a lot of it has to come from them, you need to guide the conversations but whether it's clinically or whether it's in a group workshop, a lot of it has to come to, from them. You can't just tell them what's going on, especially if they're teenagers because that never works. But when we start challenging things, like we, we, they talk about the fact that they can challenge body ideals. They can develop those social media skills, and so they can really question what what's going on. Oh, I see this. This company is preying on my vulnerabilities and trying to sell me something. Oh, okay. This this influence is telling me how I should eat. But do you know what that? actually is not going to work for my body and I'm going to be starving. And so it's when they come to those conclusions themselves and say, well, actually, I am, despite my age or despite anything, I'm empowered enough to challenge those things and question those things and I'm going to make different choices for myself and I'm going to share that information with my friends and talk about it like that. So I found that fantastic. In terms of more of a clinical slant on it, I found some cognitive behaviour therapy techniques very powerful. So it's very much about getting people to connect with their thoughts and having a look at how those thoughts will impact on their feelings. So they can really start listening to their thoughts. We've all got got our self-talk going on. Some people can identify with it very quickly. Some people it takes a lot longer. But if we stop and listen to our thoughts, okay, what kind of thoughts are we having? What are we saying to ourselves about about ourselves. And if those are negative, it's about really starting to challenge those and make them more positive and in doing so feeling more positive. One other thing which I found that has been very helpful for a lot of people, and we often do this in our workshops at Butterflies, well, it's choose three positive things to say to yourself about your body 
before you even give yourself a chance to say anything negative. So it might be say three positive things to yourself before you even get out of bed. And at least one of them has to focus on body functionality rather than aesthetics. And so all those things among countless others I've found really inspiring to observe people people doing that to really help themselves with their positive body image and their relationship with food. Amazing. I love those. Um, I probably, I, I think, you know, I've obviously been at Butterfly for a, for a long time and I have had the opportunity of meeting so many people who have um, experienced either disordered eating or an eating disorder. Um, there are... I, I can't actually narrow it down to one individual. And the reason being is that the, the I think there is something inspiring from every single person who one even just puts their hand up and says, this is what I'm experiencing. So they may be right in the process of recovering right now, or they might be, today might be the day that they go, oh my gosh, this is, this is me. I need to get some help and I need to, to find a way through this. Um, but I think, what is just incredible is that, you know, you often hear that people say, oh, once you have an eating disorder, you have it forever. And that has annoyed me for so many reasons for so many years because the pathway to recovery is incredibly intense. And once you have recovered, you've had that experience. So you're going to know things that trigger you. And there's an element of self-management and that you apply to your life moving forward. And I think what is really inspiring is when you speak to people who are recovered and being mindful that recovery will look different for everybody. What someone classifies themselves as recovery will be perhaps different for somebody else, but is that they are the way they live in their life beyond that experience. So some are giving back into the eating disorder world. Some people are staying so far away from it that it just, they just, it's like, that was my part of my life and, I, and I'm done with it. But um you know, hearing stories where people have been, um, you know, quite literally close to death and then coming back and literally coming back to life or where people have have been living with an eating disorder for so long and they have never been able to have a, a positive or healthy relationship and they recover and they they find one a relationship with themselves but then they find um, find something that they've always really, really wanted or that they've enjoyed a career and a job that just, um, fills them up to the absolute brim. They're reaching their potential in in some way. I think you know that's the inspiring um, the, the inspiring stuff that comes out of of recovery. And um, yeah, I don't I, I I can't put a one person to it because I just think anybody who who puts their hand up and says, "Oh, this is this needs I need need help here," um, is pretty incredible to be honest. <laughs> yeah, it's so amazing. I feel that, I mean, listening to your work, I mean, I am in awe of what you do because I, I really do feel that it's such an important space to be working in. And when I listen to the stories of what you guys have been doing throughout your careers, it's, it's really inspiring to me to hear your work. So if you had one piece of advice that you could give to anyone out there who might be listening right now, who might be struggling with accepting and loving their body, what would that be? Mine would be, first of all, you're not alone. So I think it's important that they, they realise that they're not the only person um, that feels that way. Um, but to compare less um, and to to just focus on finding those positives within and just 
just little steps at a time. That's probably a lot, but it's all kind of coming. Maybe not just one, but it's all kind of coming <laughs> coming together. Top isn't three, it? your top that, three. That you're not alone um, and that the more we compare ourselves to other people, the less we're going to feel um, positively about ourselves. So just um, finding those, you know, taking the wins in ourselves, whatever that might be, and obviously ideally focusing on more about what's on the inside than um, than the aesthetic stuff. Nice. I think that's absolutely brilliant, Danny. Can't come up with anything else because they are, they are definitely the top three or four. They're fantastic. Let me just add one tiny one taking inspiration from our initiative being launched in September, Body Kind Schools. We can all be kind to our bodies and even if we find that difficult because we're really going through a hard time, we can just be a little bit kinder than what we're being. So love what you said, Danny. Let's let's also practice a bit of self-kindness and self-compassion because yeah. everyone can do just a little bit more of that and some people can do a lot more of that. Amazing. I love all of those points. I think they're really great. And I think even if you're not struggling with anything, I think they're all points that we can bring into our lives anyways. And I think that'll be great for our own uh, mental health and well-being. So thank you, lovely ladies, so much for joining me on the podcast. I feel like I've learned so much from listening to you guys. So I I'm sure that all the listeners will have learnt plenty as well. So thank you again for joining me. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. <laughs> thank you. So guys, I'm going to pop through uh, in the show notes all the resources from Butterfly and I'll pop all the links to uh, – there were some other organisations that were mentioned there and – phone lines and things that you can call. So I'll pop that in the show notes for all of you. Make sure you screenshot this episode, guys, and share it to your IG stories. You can tag at the Butterfly Foundation and also at Rach Active. And we'll catch you next time on the Rach Active podcast.